Morning, everybody. <clears throat> have several scriptures that I want uh, to read today. <clears throat> and we are continuing to look at the what the Bible tells us about end times, when history will be wrapped up and as the Bible says, time will be no more. <clears throat> I don't want to repeat myself every single Sunday um, by reminding you that there are, there are a number of scattered references throughout the New Testament, some in the Old, that have to do with end times. And many of them are veiled. Um, they are difficult sometimes to interpret, difficult sometimes to know with figurative language. Are we talking about the same thing? When in the Old Testament, Daniel prophesied resurrection and so forth and how he described it. Is it the same? Are there more than one, maybe two resurrections um, of the dead? What are the end uh, timing? How long will it be stretched out? There are always a number of things that are a bit hard to understand. And the point that I want to just do not mind repeating is there are certain events that the apostles, that Jesus himself said would occur. Those are clear. The timing in which they occur, the chronological order, the length of time to fulfill those, I don't know. There are a lot of people that don't know. In fact, I've mentioned this to you, and I'll just remind you this, anybody that's really positive about all these events and when they occur and how long they'll take, and tells you that, don't pay attention to them. Um, it's too foggy. I think part of the reason that it is somewhat foggy is Jesus said that the world, meaning the non-Christian, non-believing, will see, they'll, they'll never get it. They won't recognize as things draw nigh. On the contrary, he said, you, when he was speaking to the disciples, you will recognize some of these things like when you see a fig tree begin to put forth green shoots, you know that summer is near. That simple little illustration says, spiritually, just like in the physical world, there will be signs that will tip us off that Christ's return is imminent. But he still said of the very day and hour, no one knows, including us. So there are, I have to remind you something else. There are two kinds of eschatology, and the word eschatology is doctrinal last things. General eschatology, meaning 
that which includes every human being in the entire world and the entire history and so forth. Then there's what's called individual eschatology. eschatology. What is the... What do we go through as individuals when we die? Where do we go? What state, in a sense, what condition are we in yet? We have not received a resurrected body yet. So what's all of that like? Do we immediately face a judgment or do we await a general judgment to come? There are a lot of things that we need to look at about what our Christian brothers, our parents, our loved ones that we know died in the faith. What are they doing now? Where are they? Some of those things we'll cover under individual eschatology. So hopefully today <clears throat> we'll end sort of general eschatology by looking at the, the final events that will take place. Those events would be resurrection, rapture of the church, judgment, destruction of the earth, recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. All right? Now, that's a fair amount to deal with. The scriptures will touch on some of that that I want to read. So if we look at 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning in the 13th verse, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Christian believers that, are, that have died, that you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That means Jesus. When he was here on earth... I am repeating Jesus' teaching, he's saying, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, regarding the same subject, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writing to the Corinthians spends the whole of the 15th chapter, which is far too long to read, dealing with a little group of people and apparently in the Corinthian church that cooked up the notion that there, there is no resurrection from the dead. And he's, you know, he's kind of shaking his head thinking, why do I have to write this? Telling them, 
you can't go there. That means Jesus didn't rise from the dead and so forth. And then he begins, then he wraps it up, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, or in other words, go through death, but we shall all be changed, both the dead in Christ and those who are alive at his return will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Then finally, regarding after resurrection, rapture, comes judgment, <clears throat> we have in the 20th verse, or 20th chapter of Revelation, the 11th verse. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, from those scriptures, several things we want to look at. A reminder that the return of Jesus will be so sudden that there's no time to make adjustments. There's no time to either clear up stuff with God. It's that fast. Second, it is so final that there is, there's no appeal. There's no second chance. There are, there are some people who we don't need to deal with necessarily right now who believe there will be a series of second chances, as it were. Jesus will return, catch up the church, the Christians that are living, but people who have belligerently resisted God and pushed him out of their lives and refused his call will wake up and realize, I guess this was true after all, and then they get a second chance. Then some period of time, they 
too can get right with God. The Bible doesn't have one shred of evidence to back that up. Everywhere, <clears throat> all of the apostles, but most significantly Jesus himself, over and over and over and over, kept hitting the fact that this will happen, he said, in an hour you don't know, and in a time when you do not think it will happen. He said, be ready, whether it's daytime or nighttime. You don't know, so therefore be ready. Be ready is his, one of his oft-repeated phrases. Be ready, be ready, be ready. That gives no hint of lounging around and waiting until act one is over and now I can get right with God. That's not scriptural at all. And it gives a totally false sense of security that is a false kind of security. Now, 1 Thessalonians, right off the bat, I don't have all the answers. I think I do, which, by the way, I'm, I'm going to kind of planning on the following Sunday, wrapping up general eschatology and maybe giving you where I'm at personally in all of these timings and how things will end up. I told you the very first Sunday we started looking at this subject that there's room to disagree here. These, Some of these, as I said then, all of the events will happen. You can't deny that they will happen. But the timing and so forth is fuzzy enough that we can afford to think there's a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth or not think that there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth and we can still go to heaven, okay? So it's not worth fighting over or dividing over, though some do. Now, I don't know whether the rapture and the resurrection of the believers is simultaneous or not. It seems like it's virtually that way in Thessalonians when Paul wrote to them. He said, Jesus will return at the sound of the trumpet. And the words are interesting. He will bring with him those who are asleep in Christ, those who have died, the dead, who, which is a lot. He will bring with them. Now, that implies clearly that the dead in Christ are with Christ. We're not in some nether world of gray fog. P Peter, Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So in some sense, we're with Christ the instant we die. He will bring with him as he returns to earth those that are his who have died. At, it seems, nearly the same instant, he will rapture, and the word just means to, to catch up. To 
to bring up. He will rapture the living Christians. And he said what we read, that we will be gathered together, the resurrected dead Christians receiving resurrected bodies, and the living Christians will be gathered together, it says, in the heavens, in the skies, and so we will ever together be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians tells us that of those living Christians, they will receive a resurrected body as they're being raptured. They didn't die. But they will still receive a different body. So you have, I think, you have a simultaneous event that the second coming of Christ is preceded, but it doesn't have to be preceded by anything but five seconds. There are some who think they're lengthy, lengthy time, maybe even a thousand years between the resurrection of Christians and the resurrection um, of the wicked to be judged. In 1 Thessalonians, which we don't have time to read this morning, it just simply says, when Jesus returns with all his angels, it says, in his glory, he will gather everyone together, and he will destroy those, it says, with flaming fire who have resisted him and who are not believers. That seems to package it into a one event. I will jump ahead of myself, I guess, a little bit for next Sunday. I've never figured out why. Now, I know God doesn't have to explain it to me, okay? And whether I can figure it out probably doesn't really matter to God. But I don't see any reason. After stretching out as Jesus, and the scripture makes clear, pleading with all humanity for all these thousands of years, and the Lord waiting, it says, before he returns, not willing that any perish, that he work and be patient with every soul that they make it to heaven, that come to faith in Jesus. If he spent that much time and he continually warns us, there is no exception of the shattering suddenness of his return. I don't really understand a whole long drawn out deal of a thousand years of reigning on earth and the devil being tied up in wars and and some people think that there's in, in this thousand years there will be, like Isaiah said, lambs will lie down next to lions and they'll eat grass and they won't, the lions will eat grass and won't eat the lamb. And I don't, I don't, I just think it's going to be one bang, 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 and that's it. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. But um, I think it seems to me that the catching up of the Christians who are alive and the resurrection of the dead Christians whose spirits are already with Jesus, he will bring them with him. 
is one event. It seems then um, that there is a second, but I think that there's some good basis, that there's then it's followed by the general resurrection of the wicked. There are some hints that I can't explain. 1 Corinthians, Paul talks to the church. There's a couple other places that the, that the Christians will sit, it says, in judgment. Paul told the Corinthians on another issue, they were going to court with each other, and they were bickering among the church members, and he said, what's the matter with you? He said, don't you know that we Christians will judge angels? I have no idea what that means. But he said, if, you, if, you, if we know that in the next world we're going to pass judgment on angels, I don't know what that means. Can't you figure out some, can't you deal with some little squabble that's going on in your congregation without going to the courts? In defense then of saying, get along and settle things inside without going to the unbelievers to settle fights between believers, he throws in that about, we'll sit in judgment. I don't know what that means. Now, I know you're shocked. It's the first thing I've ever told you I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea what that means. Because the angels have already been judged. Satan apparently led a rebellion in heaven. We know all about that. That's in Scripture. Jesus said, I was there. And he said, I saw Satan cast out of heaven. And hell was created for the devil and his angels, his followers. I don't know what it means then that we would judge angels. But there's some, there's some veiled things in all of this that I don't think we'll understand until it happens, until it's unfolded. I think then that there is, not only is there resurrection and there's rapture, but then there will be, after the resurrection of the Christians, some kind of a general resurrection that the book of Revelation speaks of. I saw all the dead, great and small, meaning important and unknown, everybody. Jesus used the phrase, the tribes of the, all the earth. Everyone will be gathered. And the books are opened. That's then the judgment. So here's the events that we are looking at. There's a resurrection. Whether there's a resurrection of the believers and momentarily following that, a resurrection of the wicked, I think there's some evidence, but I don't know. There will be a resurrection. We will receive new and different bodies. There will be a rapture of the church. There will be a judgment. Let's look then <clears throat> at those three events in a little, a little closer. First, the resurrection. The resurrection is the final defeat, the last enemy it says that Jesus will put under his feet is death. And he speaks to those of us who all our lifetime, it says the general humanity, are 
live in fear of death. Now, there is a constitutional death or constitutional fear of death. That simply means God built into our nature and into our literal physical bodies the, the fight and desire to live. We're made so that our, our body will even draw, shut down extremities receiving blood so that the, the organs can. God built into us to live. That's why today still medicine can't explain, cannot explain, why do we die? Well, God said, you disobey, you will be cut off from me. Sin will kill you spiritually, instantly, physically, eventually. In God's statement to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. The apple, it wasn't, we don't even know if it was an apple, but people talk about, you know, you eat the apple and you die. It was the act of disobedience. It was irrelevant what the act was. It was an act he told them not to do and made it as simple as he could. He gave them hundreds of other trees. You can eat off of all those, just leave that one alone. In the day, he said, if you eat of it, and he says, you'll die. Okay, the, the wording there is dying, you will die. The dying is spiritual, which is instantaneous because they cut themselves off from God who's the source of all life. Spiritually, when we spiritually die, we eventually physically die. So dying in that moment of disobedience, you will progressively die. So spiritually and physically, we're dead or dying. In redemption, in salvation, when we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, we are what? Born again. We're made alive. The word is regeneration, which is to bring back to life. So our spirits are reconnected with God. The separation of sin is removed. And I'm alive in Christ. But now I live in a body that's still dying. And it will die. That body then will be replaced with a resurrected body. This is a body that is not created as a brand new body. I know that there are people, everyone dust to dust, ashes to ashes. God doesn't have any problem reconnecting all of the atoms or whatever. But he doesn't create a brand new body. Jesus is our example. Jesus was laid in a tomb and when he rose from the dead and the disciples went into the tomb, they saw the face mask, the wrapping that was around his head, and the linen grave clothes that he was wrapped in. But they were empty. He stood outside 
the tomb and was not recognized. So there's some change, but I think it's a change in no flaws. The Bible says that Jesus, it doesn't use this very word, but it might as well say it. The Bible said Jesus was ugly. Every single picture we have is of this cool, you know, I remember the old head of Christ, which, you know, the ancient one. And that was the one that hung in every church and lots of houses and in the back of a Bible or whatever. And then, oh, I don't know, it was probably the 70s or maybe even the 60s. And we, we had to update Jesus because he wasn't a cool dude. And so now the pictures of Jesus are, of the, you know, this raw boned, you know, uh, not long beard. But I mean, basically, he's just a he's cool. That's not the that's not the Bible. I, I wish it were, but it isn't. Isaiah said he will have no comeliness is the King James the old language. No beauty, no handsomeness that anybody would desire him. He wasn't attractive. Now, why did God do that? I don't want to get off the subject too far. Because he knows people. He knows people. He knows how shallow we are in our thinking. Today, and I'm not going to get off into this, but, I mean, I, you, can, you can be a chainsaw murderer, and a, it doesn't matter, and a communist and a Satanist to boot. I don't care. If you're a cool, you know, if you're cool and you look good and, you know, you wear the right kind of clothes, I'll vote for him. We're dumber than posts. A fence post has a higher IQ than that. And God knows that. He knew if he sent Jesus, his son, as a Hollywood actor, people would be attracted to him for the wrong reasons. So he intentionally sent Jesus as marred is what Isaiah said. So that would be repaired. That would be renewed, different. No human flaws, fallenness of the flesh. That will be resurrection. There will be then, and Paul uses the illustration in 1 Corinthians 15. He said it's, it's just like a seed. You put a seed in the ground, it dies, and what grows up is still related fully to the seed, but it doesn't look like a seed at all. Does that make sense? And that's the argument that Paul made, and the explanation he tried to make. What will God do in the resurrection? In two things, the new bodies we have, we will receive, are imperishable and immortal, meaning no longer subject to death, decay, disease, failure, none of that. It will really be a restoration of what Adam and Eve had. 
So the resurrection will be some way God will recollect, because it's not a brand new creation that he starts over with. It's the same body we had here, even if it's disintegrated. And he reassembles it in a, it's a spiritual body. It says, like unto Christ's body. I, I don't, well, I'll take really quick. I also think a clear hint as to the type of body we'll have will be if it's like Christ, and the Bible says that, Jesus showed up in rooms where the doors were locked. He walked on water before the resurrection. But the powers that he had and the abilities that he had to materialize a knot and to come through locked doors into locked rooms, I think indicates we'll, ha we'll have some imperishable, undecayable body not limited by space um, and barriers. I don't know much more than that. But if it's going to be like his body, that must probably be included. Now, shift gears. The rapture. The living people of Christ will be caught up no matter what we're doing. And we will meet the resurrected Christians in the air. We will forever be with the Lord. Who's raptured? This is a sobering thought. Those that are ready. Again, Jesus himself used the illustration of the five foolish virgins and the five wise, all ten of whom were waiting for the bridegroom to come to participate in the wedding feast and the wedding. And it says all ten of them had their lamps burning, but the five wise took an extra flask of oil with them to keep it replenished. The five foolish didn't. And so when the bridegroom, it says, tarried, he was late, according to their thinking, like the second coming is late, according to our thinking, not God's. There was a cry, the bridegroom is coming. The five wise put in extra oil, their lamps, they trimmed the wicks, and they were burning fine. The five foolish cried out to the five wise, our lamps are going out. That's a lamp that was a one-time burning. They're going out. They said, give us some of yours. We can't. We don't have enough. And one quick little thought there, a good sermon illustration. You can't get to heaven on somebody else's religion. Well, my mom and dad were Christians. That's good, happy. That actually makes you more responsible. But I can't get to heaven on somebody else's oil. My lamp has got to be kept burning by the Holy Spirit, which is a symbol of oil, is the Holy Spirit. Keeps the fire burning in my heart. And so they said, go, go buy from the, those that sell it. So they took off to go buy oil. And it says, the five wise 
entered into the estate with the bridegroom and the door was shut. And then here came the five foolish. Now they bought enough oil. They're banging on the door and he from within the bridegroom says, depart from me, I don't acknowledge you. Now, so what, who gets raptured? Those that are ready, hear me. I don't mean to send us out of here scared to death that somehow you accidentally get in trouble with God and don't even know about it. You cannot get in trouble with God without doing it on purpose. And you know about it. You do not get raptured because your lamp was once burning. You are raptured if it's burning now. You are ready. The unready, the scripture makes very clear, will not make it. Be ready. Then finally, the judgment. I believe, I'll save that for next Sunday so I won't waste time. The general judgment assumes a number of things. One, that it will be an accurate judgment because God is keeping the books. No one else, no other human who's flawed and can't judge. I don't know what's in another person's heart. I can't read their motives, but God does. All of those things, motives and knowledge, what you do know and what you don't know, what you therefore are responsible for. Two people can stand side by side. And one is responsible for way more than the other one. And that is an unfairness on the part of God. When I finally got right with God, I had a circle of friends in high school and college. And I was without a question in that circle of, I don't know how many friends, most responsible. I had been raised with the Bible being read every day at the table before we left the table in evening meal. Saturdays were even worse because we didn't have school. Two things happened. We gathered after breakfast. We, we would gather in the living room. Longer portion of scripture, Bible story, whatever for us kids would be read. We were then... We then had to all kneel down at the sofa or in the chairs or whatever, and us kids had to pray out loud. Now, when they were really little, it'd be, you know, some mumbling thing that I know God didn't care, neither did our parents. We meant well, okay? Um, then, after being forced to have devotions, which when I got older, it was a chore because I didn't walk with God. Then even worse, the lists were passed out. Those were the chores for Saturday. Okay, So and so had to do you know, mop this floor, I had to mow the grass, whatever this case was. Saturdays were bad. Um, as long as I was home till I moved out 
you participated in that, period. The idea, well, I want to let them make their own mind up. I, want, I don't want to jam religion down their throats. My parents somehow never got that message. And the idea, and listen, we'll jam green leafies down our kids. You need to eat that. You eat that. You're going to stay here. You eat that because that's good for you. And then we let them choose where they're going to spend eternity without our input. That's absurd. That's the dumbest thing we could possibly do. I want you to not clog your arteries, but loving God, being prepared for judgment, well, you make that up. I don't want to offend you. My parents got none of those messages. I never did either. It was very simple. As the old statement, as long as your feet are under my table, you'll go to church, you'll participate in devotions, that's it. Well, I ran with a bunch of kids who'd never darkened the door of a church. And they would be, they would be surprised, knowing my background, at what came out of my mouth and what I did. Even they recognized, you got a lot of knowledge. You shouldn't be doing that. They'd do it. But in the sight of God, they were far less guilty, in a sense, than I was. Because I knew better. It's the same thing at judgment. God's, he doesn't have a sliding scale, but he does slide with what I know, what light I have or don't have, what encountering of the gospel I've had or not had. So that's why he can judge those of us in America that are surrounded by the gospel and have 10 Bibles in our houses that we never read. And some poor soul in a jungle who's never, ever seen civilization, which is really probably a privilege. He knows how to judge them both equally, fairly, kindly. And it will be a perfect judgment. It'll be accurate. There won't be any appeal from it. The great white throne that we just read about, that will be unappealable. There's no, well, we're taking the Supreme Court. That is the Supreme Court. And the books are accurate. And the book that counts is, in a sense, not the books, and I don't know what totally that means, where all of our deeds are recorded, but it's the book of life. That's why it says there's another book, and that's the book of life. There are people who, uh, all of us are in the books, which record all of our deeds. But if we have repented of them, and trusted in Christ, and walked with him. Every place our name is, the Bible's clear. It, it is covered. It's blotted out. David prayed, Lord, blot out my transgressions. God does that. Our record then is the record of our misdeeds and sins, blotted out. And our name is in the other book, the book of life. Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out, he gave them immense power that they sort of almost couldn't handle because they, they went out, he gave them power to raise the dead, to heal all kinds of diseases, and they did. They all came back after that trip, scattered all over Israel. They came back, and they were all together, and they were just hooting it up. 
Man, I tell you what, we went in there, and we there was a guy that died, and we raised him. And the other, well, you think that's good. We had three. And Jesus put a stop to it. He said, don't be rejoicing about that, what you little power you had. He says, I was there when Satan got thrown out of heaven. I, I'm, I was at the main event. Rather, what did he say? You rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That's what matters, that we're in the book of life, that our names are still there when we reach the end. Well, I have to quit. The Lord willing, hopefully, we'll, we'll wrap things up next week on the general eschatology, and then I want to look at individual. I know that some of this might be dry, um, but we need to know enough. We may not know it perfectly, but we need to know enough that we are prepared. We're ready. Let's bow our heads and we'll just dismiss with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, just to let this rest on us this morning. I just commit those thoughts that our pastor wrapped up with. Be ready. I know your Holy Spirit is faithful to witness to our hearts as we sit in this room or watch this online today, Lord. You'll let us know where we're at. You will give us peace if we are ready, but you'll convict us if we're not. So, Father, help us to just listen to your voice and then be obedient to what you tell us because we have to take this seriously, Lord, that we have to be ready. All the end times, all the eschatology stuff, that's important, but right now as we sit in our chairs not knowing when you will return, are we ready? So, Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would let that just rest on us. And if we're not ready, by your grace, we can be saved. And forgiven of our sin. And if we are ready, we will continue by your enabling grace to help us endure till the end. That we might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So the good news is, you haven't returned yet. The door's not been shut. But we need to be ready. So Father, help us to do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed, everyone. Have a great day. Love you guys.